Well, if you have your Bibles with you this evening, please turn with me to Hosea chapter 7. Hosea chapter 7. This evening we will be considering verses 1 through 10. 1 through 10. Before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, join me again in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come now to your word, praying that you would open it to our understanding. Lord, open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word that we would receive it as it truly is, the very word of God. O Lord, we pray for your spirit's work in blessing us and illuminating our our hearts and our minds, and giving us great joy in that which you declare, even that in seeing Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, Hosea chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the holy, the inspired, the inerrant and infallible word of God written for you and for me today. When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered, and the wickedness of Samaria. For they have committed fraud. A thief comes in. A band of robbers takes spoil outside. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. They make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by a baker. He ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened. In the day of our king, princes have made him sick, inflamed with wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers. They prepare their hearts like an oven while they lie in wait. Their baker sleeps all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. They are all hot like an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings have fallen. None among them calls upon me. Ephraim has mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may he add his blessing to the reading of it to us. Well, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the holy and living God doesn't turn his back on sin and sinners. He doesn't turn a blind eye to them as if nothing ever happened. He doesn't ignore it. God isn't like us as we are often tempted to avoid dealing with sin. We'd rather close our eyes and and make it disappear or, or walk away from it or even run from it. I would venture to guess that many of you don't like conflict and 
Do whatever you can to avoid it. But how does God deal with rebellious sinners? He pursues them. He confronts them in his holiness. He deals righteously with them in judgment and mercifully in chastening his children. In chapter 6, Hosea painted a helpful picture of the beauty of faithfulness, didn't he? And he did so by emphasizing and really highlighting the complete and the perfect covenant faithfulness and love of God, contrasted with his frequently covenantally unfaithful people in connected illustrations. God's faithfulness is like the consistent daily arrival of the morning and the early and latter rains that fall on the earth. His love is abundantly clear in his faithfulness and his kindness and in his goodness. We can predict and rightfully expect these things to come to pass like clockwork. And yet the people's faithfulness is quite the opposite. It's like the passing nature of a morning cloud and the morning dew that evaporates with the rise of the sun. And what does God desire of us that Hosea teach us? He desires true covenant love for him. Evidence in faithfulness and obedience. That's what he desires. God desires our complete and our total loyalty to him. Our pure, simple, biblical worship of him alone is also what he desires. Remember how Israel had become hyper-frequent in their sacrifices, offering much more than God desired or commanded in his law. Remember how they often mixed the worship of God with their worship of their idols, which made such acts sinful and defiled from the beginning through and through, although they didn't see that. And yet God told Israel and Judah that he desires mercy and the knowledge of God more than sacrifices. That which was desperately missing in their hearts and actions is what God desires. The same is true for us. Beloved, God looks at your heart. God looks at your heart. May we have a hearty, affectionate knowledge of God and keep our hearts only for Him, worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, not just going through the motions of worship or otherwise doing what isn't pleasing to Him. And so, considering their treachery and their transgressions, Israel was defiled because of their harlotry, Hosea said. Judah would be the recipient of the harvest of judgment. And yet God tells more of what he would have done if they would have repented and obeyed in our text tonight. And so let's look at Hosea's words regarding Ephraim being uncovered and remembered in verses 1 through 3. His illustration regarding the baker's oven in 4 through 7 and the people being mixed and devoured and proud in verses 7 through 10. Look at what he says in 1a as he begins to speak about them being uncovered. God says, when I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered and the wickedness of Samaria. My friends, see how the beginning of chapter 7 here is really a continuation of God's message in chapter 6. 
If you recall in chapter 6, verse 11, God spoke of what would happen when he would return the captives of his people, when he would restore their fortunes. And here, God uses the language of when he would have healed Israel, is how he puts it. He would have been the great physician to them, the great healer who would deeply and completely cure their sickness and bind their wounds. Whereas the others that they sought after could do nothing of the sort. God would have reformed them. He would have purged out their corruptions by his law and prophets. But then, then the sin, the, the hidden, old, putrefying swords of the whole nation, as both tribe and capital city are called out here in this verse, they were revealed even more and made clear. As the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 1, verse 5 through 6, he begins with a question. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Beloved, Hosea's picture here, much like Isaiah's, is like a doctor who is applying wound care. And as he clears out some of the necrosis, deeper, more nasty wounds come to light. They're exposed for what they are and for what they're doing down deeper. This surfacing of sin, though, wasn't a shock to God, but it definitely made, and it was definitely made to be further exposed. And so what did this look like? What did these deeper sores look like? Look at the second half of verse 1 in Hosea 7. For they have committed fraud. A thief comes in. A band of robbers takes spoil outside. Remember what we learned in chapter 5, verse 1. Corruption had infiltrated every level. All kinds of people in the kingdom. The priests, the people, and the house of the king, the Lord said. And here again we find God exposing wickedness occurring in a place that it should not have. In the royal city. In the capital city of Samaria, the people, the priests, and the prophets were all out sinning others as they engaged in fraud and outright lying. Unchecked theft was rampant, as was open violence at the hands of thieves and robbers. In other words, these sins revealed the strength and the danger of their disease that was growing more and more and was having more damage to them by the day. This was the true estate of their heart as seen in the fruit of what they were doing, what they were allowing. And further, their active feeding of this rampant disease progression reveals something else that's tragically true. Look at verse 2a. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness, 
the Lord says. Beloved, the Hebrew, for them not considering in their hearts, it literally means they do not say to their hearts. They don't speak to themselves. They're not aware. They, they lack the insight. They, they, they lack the discernment. They, they lack the awareness. They don't consider it for one second. Keep in mind, the heart, it really refers to the whole inner man, mind, will, and emotions. They weren't giving any thought to the fact that God remembers all of their sin and wickedness. They were doing all right in their mind, as God would surely be appeased by their plethora of sacrifices, right? That's what they thought. But they were so wrong. And Hosea told them time and time again. That's not what the Lord desires. The Lord desires your heart. Not your sacrifice. When God said he remembers, this means he consciously and willfully thought about them. And so see the clear contrast here. The people in their wickedness refused to think about what God intentionally thought about. They refused to think about what God intentionally thought about. They deceived themselves in their own sin. And all was transparent and evident and clear in the eyes of the Lord. He wouldn't forget. Yet Paul taught the churches in Galatia. In Galatians 6-7, he said this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. They may have deceived themselves. They may have been blind and lost in, in sin and corruption. But God is not mocked. That was true then. It's true today, beloved. The living God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. So as we think about this, right? as we think about the estate of sinful man, even wickedness, in the presence and in the hands of the Holy God, praise God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for His new covenant blessings. When we believe in Christ, we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. He binds our wounds. He heals all of our diseases. Christ has paid for and forgives all of our sins. And wonderfully, what is true, He remembers them no more. Remember the wonderful truth that the writer quotes from Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews 8, verses 10 through 12. You can turn with me there if you want. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. Beginning in verse 10, we read, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And notice verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. 
says the Lord. Praise God. Hosea said that Israel and Judah definitely would reap what they sow. You see this in verse 2b and verse 3. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face, the Lord says. They make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies. See the two important and big things here. First, the sins of the people surrounded them, he says. There was no way of escaping from their responsibility in what they had done. There was no way out. There was no side door, no back window. They were surrounded. Their sins were before God's face. God saw all that they had failed to consider. He remembered them and would punish them. And secondly, again, we we are given a view of the utter moral failure of the leadership here. Whereas the royal leaders should have been pillars of strength in providing such moral leadership, in walking rightly with God, they rather savored the evil and the treachery around them. We see that here as we consider these words of the king being made glad and the princes and their lies. But Hosea then goes on to provide an illustration to describe them even further, to give an even clearer picture, and to really press the matter home in an entirely next level. Look at verse 4. They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by a baker. He ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it's leavened. We'll stop there for a moment. My friends, all of the leadership committed covenant adultery against God. They all walked away from him and joined themselves to false gods and to heathen allies. And so this baker's oven is a clear picture of what the adulterous treachery and wickedness in the political life of Israel look like. And as we consider this illustration, how do bakers bake? They first heat up their oven. They continually stir and and fuel the fire to heat the oven to the highest degree. And yet the hot, flaming oven Hosea describes isn't being used for its intended purpose. Notice that. Like the rising fire of this oven, so were the perverted passions of the people that have risen into raging flames. Like the dough, the whole mass of the people and the leadership were leavened with this unclean fire. That's what's in view. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of God's view of tragic treachery in Jeremiah 9, verse 2, when he says, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go from them. And why? For they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. And again, later in Jeremiah 23, verses 9 and 10, we read, My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. For because of the curse, the land mourns. 
pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their course of life is evil, and their might is not right. So we see this added picture in Jeremiah of treachery. What it looks like, of what the effects of it are. If we look back at verse 5 in Hosea chapter 7, we read, In the day of our king, princes have made him sick and flamed with wine. He stretched out his hand with the scoffers. What is this day of the king, beloved? Well, the day of the king is was a feast day that could have been held for a couple of different occasions. Whether it be the king's birthday or maybe the anniversary of his coronation, either of those could have been in view. Similar to the picture of the misused flaming oven, Hosea here gives an example of the misuse of these feasts. Instead of a thankful remembrance of God's mercies on such occasions, his princes got the king punch drunk and sick with wine. That's the course that they followed through with. That's what happened. So much so that his indiscretions included stretching out his hand with scoffers who would disdain correction or rebuke. Something that he wouldn't have done in his right mind. Remember, the godly aren't to associate with such people. We see this clearly in Psalm 1, verse 1, don't we? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And yet the king in his drunkenness was joining in with them and acting like them. It's terrible. Look at verses 6 and 7. They prepare their heart like an oven while they lie in wait. Their baker sleeps all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. They are all hot like an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings have fallen. None among them calls upon me. See the progression of this illustration, my friends. The leadership was like an adulterous oven with raging flames on the inside. The princes inflamed their king to drunkenness and indiscretion. And now the spotlight goes deeper into the hearts of these princes, except here the princes, not the bakers, are fueling the fire within their own hearts as they plot violence and revenge. Notice the baker is sound asleep. He's sound asleep in this illustration. He who should be on watch to prevent such mischief in the oven was taken up by food and drink and the feast himself. The baker was dead asleep, sleeping it off, only to wake in the morning when the flames were out of control and the princes were posed to launch their rebellious strike. What else in Scripture and does Scripture warn us about regarding the fiery oven? Can you think of that? The day is coming. When those who make themselves like an oven raging with flames in their own vile and perverse passions, 
If that fire isn't extinguished by divine grace, they will be made as a fiery oven by divine wrath, beloved. When the day comes, they will burn as an oven. How do we know that's true? Where in Scripture are we taught that? Look at Psalm one, uh, excuse me, Psalm twenty-one, verse nine. Psalm twenty-one, verse nine: You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in His wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Very sobering words. Very deadly words of judgment for those who are the recipients of the wrath of God. Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Again, the, the dreadful, the terrible wrath of God. What will be true of such wicked sinners? And again, we are drawn as we consider this to consider and to take great joy and, and to be thankful and to have comfort in, in, in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, are we not? Uh, in the reality of the gospel, and the reality of our redemption. And why? Because we have been saved from such wrath. We have been spared from such wrath because the wrath of the Father was poured out on His Son for us. We shall not become and not be like a fiery oven devoured in the wrath of God. For Christ took that punishment for us. Praise the Lord. But God says importantly at the end of this verse, notice, none among them calls upon me. My friends, their failure to call upon the living God, even in the midst of the unrest, seen in the assassination of four kings within 20 years, if you remember the history that we considered at the beginning of this series, king after king was killed by their successor, assassinated. Unrest. Short periods of time. Men who did not love or obey the Lord. Such failure shows their prideful self-reliance. Remember the feast of pride and the famine of prayer shows a great problem in the heart of God's people. The feast of pride and the famine of prayer there's a great problem in the hearts of God's people. Prayer is always an index, beloved, of the level of dependence that we have on God. It is one of the first things that Satan tries to attack as well, right? He can cut us off in communicating with God. We can spend less and less time with our Lord and our Savior May we never go into a famine of prayer, beloved, even when we struggle. If you're like me, 
go through series and periods of time where that can be true? Or you struggle in doing what you know you ought? You struggle in using the grace and, and taking benefit of the grace that is extended to you in such communication with the living God. He's there, he's listening, he's hearing your prayers. How willing or unwilling are we to come to him? It's something I encourage you to think about tonight. But also consider God's words regarding Israel being mixed and devoured and proud, beginning in verse 8. He says Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Beloved, one of the big problems was that Israel mixed with the heathen. They had shifting alliances with Egypt and Assyria and Philistia and Aram. And therefore, continuing with the baking metaphor, Israel was like a cake unturned. And a cake unturned is not good. Why? What happens to an unturned cake in the oven when it's left there? Many of you ladies, maybe others, some of you men, some of you kids that have baking skills, well, you know what happens when you're baking something, a cake or a cookie or otherwise, and you don't turn it as you ought or in time as you ought. What happens? It gets scorched on the one side and it's still raw on the other. And what's the result? You can't go through with its intended purpose. You don't eat it. This is what they were like. In verse 9 we read, Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. And the pride of Israel testifies to his faith. But what is true? That they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. See the foolish pride of Israel. We've, we've considered this many times before, but there is an intended reason. All of God's words, every single word, in the scriptures, in this very prophet, is important, is meaningful, is intentional, and true, and helpful for us to understand the message that God is declaring and proclaiming to us. This is far from the first time that we have considered the pride of Israel. But see their foolish pride here and how it is described in these verses. They went and made alliances with the nation to have help and get aid and to find refuge and to receive comfort and healing. And yet the heathen nations did what to them? They zapped and devoured their strength and they didn't realize that that had happened. In many ways, they went in rebelliously. We know that to be true. The Lord has declared that to be true in previous verses. In other ways, they went in blindly. They went intentionally, but they couldn't perceive or understand what the enemy was doing. Doesn't that have modern application for us today? 
Israel was ignorant of how politically weak and drained they had become. The lack of the knowledge of God led to their lack of self-awareness. There was consequence for the knowledge of God being nowhere in the land. They were like an unobservant man looking in the mirror, Hosea said, thinking that he sees vitality in the color of the hair of his youth, but everyone else can see that he's got plenty of gray in there. And I'm not talking about myself right now. <laughs> but so Israel was likened to such a cake and, and an ignorant fool because they played around with the nations and refused to return to their covenant Lord and to seek him. That was the problem. They did what they desired, not what he desired. He desired them in their hearts. He desired their obedience and worship solely for him. And they went and gave it to others. And so as you leave here tonight, don't be like Israel, being unrepentant and defiant, all the while having putrefying sores that are gaping and obvious. Rather, as you continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God, as you continue to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, as, as He sharpens your conscience through His Word, learn from Israel. Learn from Israel that you may be quick to repent and to return to Christ when you sin, quick to seek forgiveness and healing from the great physician, quick to seek Him, quick to return to Him and embrace Him as your covenant Lord. And further, be quick and careful to deal with any sinful flames that try to arise in the oven of your heart. Don't fan them. Don't stoke them like the princes did. But rather call upon the Lord and Savior that is yours in Jesus Christ. Call upon Him in prayer for grace and for aid before they overcome and devour you. But also be committed to have a daily evangelistic witness to unbelievers that the Lord brings across your path. Calling them to repent and to turn to Jesus for mercy that by His saving grace they may be spared from being a fiery oven of his divine wrath. This is gospel opportunity, as well as it is a time of humble self-examination and action for us. And finally, as God's people, as his church, may we not make any alliances with the enemies of Christ, May we be grounded and wise and loyal to and, and protected by Christ and His Word that we wouldn't be deceived fools who become drained of our strength and wooed away and we're none the wiser to it. But beloved, this is in part why He's given us His Spirit. This is why He's given us His Word. This is why Christ is with us. 
so that we would know these things. That we would have the knowledge of God and His commands. That we would see the world and its wiles and, and the wiles of Satan against us for what they truly are. That we would have eyes wide open. Yes, we can be deceived by sin. But we also belong to the great Savior who opens our eyes, who removes the scales, who helps us as we repent and humble ourselves before Him, who helps us to see things clearly, to see Him clearly, and to run with much weeping and sorrow back to our Lord, to, to turn and to say, Oh Lord, forgive me. For this that I've done, or maybe even this that I've been drawn away and desired to do. Lord, may I serve you faithfully in the days of my life. May I encourage others to do the same for your glory, for you are my covenant Lord, you are my King, you are my Savior. May I never again Turn to another and away from you. Oh, how marvelous the work of our God, beloved. See his patience, see his faithfulness, see his holiness and his judgment. But see his pursuit of his people as he makes things right in Christ and calls us to come to him. Amen. Praise God for his word. Let's pray to God.